0: You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. All right, well, good morning. Good to be with you guys. We've got a, uh, if you've got a Bible, go ahead. We're going to be in John chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. Um, We're going to work through the closing chapter of this uh, great book. Uh, the Gospel of John has been said to be one of, the, one of the best books for understanding Christian theology and understand who Jesus is and what the Christian life is all about. Um, some, some folks have said uh, that the Gospel of John is uh, deep enough that an elephant could swim in it and yet shallow enough uh, and easy to understand that a toddler could swim through it as well and wade through it. Um, so in this series that we're doing called Off the Grid... Um, it's a explanation, an explanation and exhortation to help you understand who Jesus is and how you follow him in every area of your life. And at times it will seem that it, it challenges us to live in environments and settings and, and seasons that are just, they're off the grid. They're not the big superhighway. They're not easy to follow. And so in this series, we're going to do that. Last week, I taught on the idea of humility And uh, we looked at the life of John the Baptist, perhaps the most successful uh, man that had ever lived. Jesus called him the greatest man who ever lived. Uh, He was a successful preacher-teacher. His ministry drew in thousands. He preached a message about the kingdom of God and having the need for people to repent, and be baptized and that is a big part of the christian life today we're going to have some baptisms after our second service and john the baptist was the preacher teacher wild guy that was preaching along the jordan river thousands were coming and then in the height of his ministry the height of his influences he points the attention and um to jesus christ jesus christ is new on the scene at this point in time In the storyline of the Gospel of John to his public ministry, Jesus is in his early 30s and he begins to proclaim. And John said this famous passage when John's followers came to him uh, and said, Jesus is baptizing a lot more people than you are now. Shouldn't we be uh, shouldn't we be frustrated? Shouldn't this shouldn't be? Your ministry was powerful. Now Jesus is on the scene, and then John said this to his disciples, which is a powerful axiom for every Christian. He must increase, but I must decrease. John had a vision for what needed to take place. Take place, he understood that Jesus was far superior than he was. He understood that he was the Messiah, John wasn't. And so he says this phrase, and this phrase has been repeated and uh, uh, rehearsed, memorized by Christians all around the world for thousands of years. And so let's say it together He must increase, but I must decrease. Last week we looked at the idea of decreasing in life, and uh, the message was all about uh, humility how a proud person can pursue humility. And humility is very interesting. The second you claim that you are a humble person, you've lost it. And so I said to you, I am a proud person who is pursuing humility. And uh, so today what we're going to do is look at the second part of that passage where John the Baptist says this. He says, um, I must decrease, we talked about that last week, and today we're actually going to be looking at how can we increase uh, the, the power, the supremacy of Jesus Christ in our life. And we're going to look at um, what many theologians has, would say is actually the, the Apostle John's writings and kind of response to John the Baptist. And so in verses 31, we'll start there. It says this, uh, that he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. What is John saying? Well, I want to create the argument before we dive into this, that this is not John the Baptist who is speaking at this point. This is John the Apostle, Um, the closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and help me out. John, the inner circle, the three. Um, John is a, 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 he wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He wrote Revelation. Um, He is a theologian. He is incredibly gifted, very smart. And what we're going to dive into, verses 31 through 36, and close chapter 3 of John for a a very long time, because I think this is going to be a three-year journey in the Gospel of John. Um, But in the closing statements of chapter 3, What John is going to do is help everybody understand that as great as John the Baptist was, Jesus is even greater, that he must increase. He's going to take that idea and explain it about the deity of Jesus Christ. So if you're seeking and trying to understand more of just who Jesus is, or if you need an elevation, an aspiration of getting a bigger vision for God, today is the day uh, to grasp that. So he starts with this um, statement. There are no more quotations. This is the gospel. This is the Apostle John speaking. All his language that he uses in the closing verses matches and mirrors all the other writings in the Gospel of John. He is not the evangelist writing, he is the theologian who is writing. And he says, This he who comes from above is above all. He's referring to Jesus Christ, he's above John. He's above every preacher, he's above every uh, uh, priest, he's above every teacher, Uh, he's above everybody. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth, and who's he referring to there? There's a little comparison and contrasting. He's referring to John the Baptist. And he says, and speaks in an earthly way. This idea is that, uh, first, let's go back to that phrase, he comes from above. What he's doing is he's painting the picture that Jesus Christ comes from heaven. So how many of you, um, I'm going to test your old uh, sing-along abilities in, in church and figure out how many of you remember the old songs. But how many of you remember this song that goes, He comes from heaven to earth, help me out, to show the way from the Come on. You got it. All right, there you go. Give yourself a round of applause. You guys, uh, uh, first service did a pretty good job too. So those of you who sang that song, you've been around in church for a bit and you remember that song. That's good theology. That, that, that's good biblical theology in a song that helped you to remember who Jesus is. Jesus comes from above. His origins are not beginning in Bethlehem. That's where he put on his humanity like a robe over himself, he became like one of us. But Jesus is eternal. He's always existed. In fact, John goes f- so far to say that he's, he was there in the beginning. In him, all things hold together. It's Jesus Christ is eternal. He is God. And this is why John the Apostle is trying to show that he's different than John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist He's a good man. He read the scriptures. He had a good dad who was a priest, but he was human. And Jesus is God-man. Jesus is different. So, continuing on, it says, uh, continue on in the verse: it says that he who comes from heaven, he clarifies, is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Here in this passage, what we see is that why Jesus is greater. In other words, like, why is Jesus greater? Um, John states in verse 32 that he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. In other words, what John the Apostle is saying is that Jesus does not have second-hand information. Jesus does not need to consult uh, the Torah Jesus does not need to consult the Old Testament Scriptures to communicate divine truth because Jesus is the truth. Are you with me? He was there in the beginning. This isn't secondhand information as any preacher or teacher. They read from God's Word, they pray, they get some inspiration from the Holy Spirit, um, and then they preach. Jesus was there in the beginning. In fact, in John's Gospel, if you recall... Uh, he was there bef- in the beginning of all of creation. It says that He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. So we're going to do an old song again. Ready? This is a sing-along. This is a test. Um, so remember this song. Sing with me and sing a little louder so um, you know it's not so awkward, okay? He's got the whole world... In his hands, he's got the whole Come on. Good job. Give yourself a round of applause. Okay. So you're like, can we please stop singing those? Uh, You know what? Here's the deal. You know what? The Apostle Paul affirmed the same idea. It's the supremacy of Christ in all things. The Apostle Paul said that in him, all things hold together. The reason why we have life on planet earth is because the sun and the earth are perfectly orbiting perfectly. There's a perfect balance in all of the solar system and in the universe. And the Bible says that Jesus holds all things together. In him, all things are moving and nothing gets past him without his control. And the apostle John is affirming the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ John has a massive vision on why he must increase. He sees Creator, he sees himself as creation. And this brings humility. He knows that Jesus has the whole world in his hands. And so, continuing on, it says in um, this phrase, there is a problem. Look what it says it says, yet no one receives his testimony. Um, really? No one? Well, what does John mean here? John is using hyperbolic uh, language here, which means he's exaggerating. Uh, what's he saying? What's he, what's he really mean here? What he means is that the Jewish people, by and large, actually rejected Jesus Christ as Messiah. I invited my Jewish friends uh, to uh, Easter one time, they were uh, my barbers, and uh, I invited them, and they said, we can't come to your Easter event. Like, Good Friday, we're like, we're, we're the ones who crucified Jesus. We, if we show up, they're going to hate us. I said, yeah, that would be a little awkward. Well, remember, it's Good Friday, he was crucified, but Easter, he rose again. And they said, we'll come at Christmas. I said, okay, that's a good one. <laughs> um, remember, by and large, Jesus was rejected. He was scorned. He was uh, rejected by Jewish people, by and large. Some believed. Nicodemus, he's a Jew, scholar, two PhDs, very smart. He believes, but he had to meet Jesus in the dark. By and large, many people rejected Jesus Christ as Messiah. Some accepted him. Gentiles did, non-Jewish people did. Next week, I'm going to teach on the woman at the well. She's a Samaritan. She's one who would be a scandalous person by the Jews, according. The Jews, a lot of the Jews were racist. Jesus is anti-racist. And the message of the gospel says this idea that John is saying no one receives his testimony. He's exaggerating, but look in verse 33. He says, whoever receives his testimony, so some do. And when he means whoever, he means whoever, means Jews, Gentiles, means it doesn't matter about your ethnicity, your education, your religious background, says whoever receives his testimony, sets his seal to this, that God is true. What does this mean? Well, let me explain what it means to set the seal. Um, Back in the uh, ancient world, to set your seal would be, is that you would take a signet ring and dip it into hot wax and then imprint it on a, a letter or some kind of official document. And it served as a sign and a symbol of authenticity or approval. And in a sense, so I think what the Apostle John is trying to say is that when you link up with Jesus Christ, if you receive his testimony of who he is, that he is the Messiah, you are signing your name to what is true. You're signing your name to the source of all truth. So like, we say, and we have these wonderful plaques, and you see them on Pinterest, as for me and my household, household, we shall what? Serve the Lord. So it means, like for my family, the Rice family will live an honorable life. They will serve the Lord Jesus Christ. My name is set with that, and my name is sealed with that. My name ought to be a name that's signed up and set up in alignment with the God of all truth. Jesus said he is the truth, and what the Apostle John is saying is, whoever... Whoever receives him, he's lining up with God. And God is the source of all truth. And there was question, speculation, whether Jesus Christ was really the Messiah. And it took time. The church exploded with growth because Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus appeared and showed up to crowds of 40 and 400 and 500. And people saw who he was, that he was not dead, but he is alive. God is true. So, We see that in the closing verse of 33, and then let's move on to verse 34 and 35. John continues, and he says, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. It's very interesting to me. 39 different times in the Gospel of John, this idea of Jesus being sent by God Is repeated. Jesus said later, we'll see in John chapter 4, when Jesus got hungry, uh, his disciples said, aren't you hungry? And he says, my food is to do the will of my Father. I mean, that's a pretty spiritual response. I'd be like, I am hungry, and I do want to obey God, but I'm hungry. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of my Father. Um, God sent Jesus Um, When we see Jesus in Bethlehem, he is taking on humanity, but Jesus eternally existed. He sent him to utter the words of God, um, and then it says he was given the Spirit without measure. This is the idea that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, um, an absolute and 100% without measure. When Jesus walked into the synagogue and took the scrolls of Isaiah and read them, he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he has anointed me to proclaim good news for the captives. And then he rolls it up and says, today all this has been fulfilled in your hearing. He was affirming this idea that the Spirit of God had anointed him, and he received, John says, that the Spirit without measure. And then he goes on to say, uh, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. What John was doing was affirming the idea that there's John the Baptist, Any other preacher, teacher, prophet, priest, whoever, none of them are as great as Jesus Christ. Jesus is greater than all. You could take Muhammad, you could take Buddha, you could take Gandhi, you can take whoever you want and line them up to Jesus. Nobody is greater than Jesus. This is why Christianity is the largest religion in the world, is because Jesus has such an influence, such a a, a resume of of miraculous signs and wonders and the, the, the... Thousands and millions of Christians in every century have been giving testimony about who Jesus Christ is, dying for their faith. The archaeology supports the Christian faith. There, Jesus is the truth. And John is presenting that and says, he's given all things into his hand. He's presenting Jesus Christ as absolute divine authority over all things. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Um, And he's worthy of our worship. And then in the closing verses, chapter 3, verse 36, we read that we have some choices to make, to consider about how we respond. John the Apostle gives us two choices and illustrates two consequences to those choices for all of humanity. He starts with this phrase and he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's choice number one and consequence number one. Let's look at this a little bit more clearly. I think what's important for us to see is that whoever means whoever. Whoever, doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter what your present situation is. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are given eternal life. And by the way, eternal life does not start after your death. Eternal life starts here and now. When Jesus spoke to the woman at the well, we'll see, he talks about a living water about when you start living for Jesus, following Jesus, believing in Jesus, you find life right here, right now, and then you find life for eternity. So for the Christian life, I I like to say it like this, the Christian life, ladies and gentlemen, is the best life. There is no better life than the Christian life. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you've been through, God is with you. The Bible says he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And there is peace and favor in walking with Jesus Christ. You do have to follow Jesus off the grid, not like everybody else in the world. You are chosen, selected, loved, appointed, anointed. God has called you. He's challenging you to follow him. And John paints this contrast because he does this all the time. He says, there's light, there's darkness. There's good, there's evil. And John says now, Here are the choices for all of humanity. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey, obey is tied directly with belief. He says, whoever does not obey, the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So now we're going to go slow, like we're driving up from Sedona to Flagstaff and Oak Creek Canyon. And those turns are pretty sharp. You go slow, you don't go fast, or you fly off the cliff. And so now we go slow, and I'll walk through this to help you explain some of these phrases in here. The second choice isn't a good one. The second consequence is a horrific one. The second choice isn't a good one. Here it is, don't believe, and you shall not see life. Rather, God's wrath will remain on you. So, by using the word remain, listen to me, By using the word remain, what this implies is that the present condition of all unbelievers currently is condemnation. If you do not receive Jesus Christ as Lord, you have not or you will not, your present condition is condemnation. The wrath of God remains on you, remains. It doesn't just start when you reject him, it remains on you. The idea here is not that one day God will condemn all unbelievers. The idea here is that he is already condemned. We already stand condemned if we reject Jesus Christ through unbelief. God's wrath is remaining on all who choose not to receive Jesus Christ presently. So let me clarify. What is God's wrath? Here's a good definition for God's wrath. God's wrath is this. God's wrath is his intense hatred towards any and all sin and evil. Um, God's wrath is his intense hatred towards any and all sin and evil. You may say this is a difficult idea to understand and so I'm going to ask some questions that I thought you might have had and then I'm going to answer them from a very scholarly perspective. So put on your thinking caps for a moment. The question is, is why is it important for us to appreciate or at least understand God's wrath? Or how can wrath be viewed in a positive sense? In a positive sense. Well, consider the following statement. Uh, this idea of God's wrath, uh, I think, was greatly uh, explained by a friend of mine who's a, a, a been a mentor. He is a world-class theologian. His name is Dr. Wayne Grudem. Um, he's got incredible theological works done. He's on a world-class level. He's got two or three PhDs. He's the Nicodemus of the Christian faith. Uh, Good man. So he writes this. As with the other attributes of God, this is an attribute for which we should thank and praise God. I thought just for a second, I put down my coffee mug and I'm like, wait a second. We should praise and thank God for his wrath? But then read it a little further. It may not immediately appear to us how this can be done, since wrath seems to be such a negative concept. Viewed alone, it would arouse only fear and dread. I mean, who wants the wrath of God on them? Yet it is helpful for us to ask, what would God be like if he were a God that did not hate sin? Imagine that for a moment. Stop. Imagine that. God, all-powerful, Almighty, King of kings, Lord of lords, the great I am. He doesn't care about sin. Do what you want. Violence, killing, rape, child abuse, addiction. Oh, I don't care. Indifferent. That is not the God we serve. God hates sin. And look, continuing further, he would then be a God who would either delighted in sin or at least was not troubled by it. Such a God would not be worthy of our worship, for sin is hateful and it is worthy of being hated. Sin ought not to be. It is in fact a virtue. It is a virtue to hate evil. I've said this before. I feel like the intensity of Christians is very, is too low. There needs to be some level of greater intensity within an increased level of evil being as normative acceptance within our culture. Like we downplay sin, we downplay evil. And I love what Grudem said here. In fact, a virtue is to hate evil and sin. And we rightly imitate the attribute of God when we feel hatred against great evil, injustice, and sin. I think of, in church history, William Wilberforce, who was the catalyst to end slavery. I think of. He's in being, arousing in him a righteous anger to say this cannot be, this is not how Christians should act. And Christians have and they should be constantly on the offense continually impacting and influencing culture for the good and the glory of God. Amen? And so if we do not have a hatred towards sin, nor we accept and believe in a God who hates sin, then we have washed this all down. And pretended to be good moral people. But uh, Christians need to have a right theology. There is good. And there is evil. And we choose good. And we live for good. And when there is evil, we should not just pass by. But we should speak up. We should say something. We should do something. How many of you have ever been um, witness parents who just did not care what what their kids would do? I mean sleep together, get drunk. I mean, I I was a rough kid as a teenager, and I would go to the parents' house who didn't care about anything what we did. They would go upstairs, have their drinks. We would go downstairs, and we would do whatever we wanted. Today, as a parent, man, that rubs me wrong, man. I see the aftermath of what happened in my own life and watch so many young People go down these darkness roads of darkness and depravity. And I'm like, the parents stood by and did nothing. If you do not have a hatred towards sin, you will not accept a God who is just and loving, but is also a God of wrath who hates sin. So every injustice that you see, God hates it. And so in the closing thoughts of this passage, I want to challenge you to wrestle with biblical truth and then accept it for what it is. I didn't write it. I'm just not the preacher preaching on God's wrath. I'm the person who's preaching through the gospel of John for you in this season, in this time. And I'm asking you, would you increase your vision for who God is? That he's not just a God of love, but he's also a God of wrath. And so we see some practical application, I think, through this text. I'll I'll theme it with our idea of Jesus off the grid. How a proud person can pursue humility. This is part two of last week. How a proud person can pursue humility and increase their vision for who Jesus Christ is. Number one, I would say you need to follow the leader. Um, By follow the leader, I'll illustrate this. It's the idea that you understand that Jesus, first of all, is preeminent, meaning he's above all things, he's before all things, he's bigger, he's better than you, he's bigger than anything else that you could ever dabble with, Um, anything else you could ever seek, Jesus is far greater. Um, he is preeminent. Preeminent means surpassing all others, distinguished as the greatest and the superior. If you are wrestling with other world religions or you're falling into the idea of one where a pluralistic perspective on the religion that all paths lead to one, this is not placing Jesus as preeminent. Jesus is preeminent. He's above, he's before, all things all things were placed into his hands according to Scripture. God the Father, he's the king, he's the Lord, he's the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. So follow the leader on a practical note. I remember to illustrate this as a uh, guide back in Colorado. I served as a, a mountaineering guide and one of the challenges that we would have um, is that everybody uh, would want to try to lead. Um, I did backpacking and I did river rafting. On, on one occasion, I remember in my training, I was in a, a boat and we were the water had just, uh, the CFS, the cubic feet per second, had increased pretty significantly and the water was incredibly dangerous, the river was. I was a little delayed in my training for various reasons and we got down to the beach and uh, they said, okay, you, you're going to need to pick a leader he will be the guide and you will be the paddle team and you guys need to go down this river. It was higher than we'd ever seen, so we'd never trained on this level of river flow. And the, the consequences are severe, very significant. You fall out, you can drown if you don't swim to shore, all that kind of stuff. So we're, I get down to the river or get down to the beach. All these guys are arguing, just a bunch of testosterone, arguing over who's the biggest, who's the best. You know, they're flexing their biceps. They're looking big and bold. And I get down there and I'm like, okay, somebody's got to get us down the river. And so they're arguing on who should be the paddle captain. I walk up and I say, look, all of you guys are good. All of you are good. You're a lot better than me, in fact. But Jeff, Jeff's the greatest here. Let's let Jeff lead. And the rest of us, let's just follow his lead. And everybody agreed. You're right. Jeff is great. And we're not as great. So we let him lead. Here's my point. My point is there come seasons and times in life where if you don't get this idea that Jesus is number one in your life, you will place your marriage in front of Jesus. You will place your kids in front of Jesus. You will place anything and everything that gives you some level of feeling and satisfaction and peace and comfort. You'll place a puppy in front of Jesus. You'll place anything in front of Jesus. And Jesus is preeminent. He is first, he's before, he surpasses all others, and he is superior to all things. So, exhortation to increase your vision and understanding of who Jesus Christ is put him before all things, follow the leader. And this applies in just life. You have to learn how to follow the leader. When you follow your relationship with Jesus Christ, you constantly say, You're the king, I'm the servant, Uh, you're the leader, I'm the follower. That's what disciple means. It's somebody who follows Jesus. Like your life is a follower. It's, it's humbling. How many of you have ever been horseback riding before? There's usually one horse that leads and the rest of them sniff butts. And I'm like, I don't want a butt sniffer. That's what I tell the guys. If I'm riding a horse, I want to run. I don't want the butt sniffers. But here's the sad part. You and me, our vision that God has painted for us We're so supposed to be the servants. We're supposed to follow the leader. John the Baptist got it. John the Baptist said, he must increase. Ah, I must decrease. You want influence? You want to make a difference? Elevate your vision for who Jesus Christ is. Follow the leader in all things. Let the Bible be your referee when you get into a fight with your spouse. Let the Bible be the referee when it comes to struggles and trials and hardships and hard decisions. Put Jesus first in all things. He is worthy of that. He is worthy of your worship. You pursue him. You ask him, Lord, what should we do in this situation? I want to put you first. That's the priority principle. Jesus said, help me out. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these other things will be what? Given unto you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, there's a priority principle that needs to take place. Number two, I would say, orient the map. Orient the map. Jesus is the truth. He's the true north. I can recall a different season and time uh, when I was guiding, they uh, broke us up into divisions. So, we were river guides, specialized in that. We ran the rivers, become river rats, sunburned and strong. And all the glory was in the river guides, you know, because you get photographed every day. You're in the boat with all these girls and guys, and, you know, you're, 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 you're the showboats. Um, I became a backpacker. And the reason why I became a backpacker, I uh, specialized in that, was because there was ministry there. You want to know where I learned how to do ministry? In the backcountry. Because I'd take people, the strongest, the proudest, the richest, the wealthiest, the poor, all of them, I would take them in the backcountry. I'd take the strongest football players, a lot of them came from Texas. I don't know why. Every Texas loves Colorado. So all the proud Texans would come up. We'd get them out, and we'd go hike mountains. We, they'd say, we want to bag a 14er. Like, we, we want to do that, 14,000-foot mountain. We want to hike, you know, three or four days. We want to hike along rivers. We want to just push us. So we would. So um, I got good at that, did a lot of ministry, watched men, grown men, break down and cry like little babies, and I'd have to build them back up. And I watched women that were so uh, meek and, and uh, just a, a small, tender frame. They would be the tough ones oftentimes because they could listen to orders, follow orders, and move along. But I got in trouble one day. I was in charge of training a lot of junior guides. I was asked to uh, take them to what I referred to as the Bermuda Triangle of the backcountry. Everybody got lost out here. Um, and so it was an area that was not just a national forest, it was a wilderness area. And if you're not familiar with wilderness areas, they're called WMAs. And um, that means they basically don't, they don't tend to it. The national forest doesn't service it. It's just out there. It's off the grid. So I lead this junior guide, and I'm supposed to be the expert, and I'm probably too pride, prideful in this season of my life. And so I take this young protege out there Um, we got a team from Texas that came in. All the proud hotshots thought they were the leaders. I constantly have to try to put them in their place. Like, look, we're the trained ones. You just need to listen to us. So we get into it. We're starting to push over a pass. A major storm comes in. I get disoriented. I get flustered because I've got other grown adults around me questioning my decisions, my judgment. Storm comes in. Hailstorm comes in. We get cold. The kids and the youth don't have their, their gear on. The grown adults start getting frustrated. We, they start getting altitude sickness. They start puking. They start, it's not going good. My junior guide comes to me and says, Ryan, I think we're off course. I don't think we're going to make the pass correctly. And if we don't make the pass, we're going to get stuck in the uh, elements and we could get hypothermia. This could go really bad. So I say, all right. So we have a little talk on the side. Pull my map out. And you should have a compass, you know, obviously. And what you do... um, You try to orient off of a off of a mountain peak, and you have to figure out. A map is great, but you have to figure out where north is. If if you can't orient your map to where north is, and you're standing out in the backcountry, it does you very little good. So you have to orient the map. You take a compass, and it's called triangulation. You pick three points. And then you figure out where they are, you write them down on your map, and you can draw lines and find out exactly where you're at. And some of you are saying, well, why don't you just use a GPS? Well, they didn't have GPS back then. Okay? And so, and a lot of those places you just can't get signal. Um, unless you've got some kind of satellite uh, deal or whatever. So uh, I thought I went through the steps of triangulation. My junior guy took note. I go back out to the team, tell them exactly what we're going to do. We go and we push it. And a massive storm comes in, and people are there's a mutiny on my hands, and I'm the leader. I didn't handle it correctly. I got frustrated. The leader's barking at me. I bark back at him. Now the youth and the team are starting to pick sides. Like it's like not going good. Junior guide comes up to me and says, "Hey Ryan, can we talk real quick?" Ian Collenbach, that's his name. He says, we, "Can we talk?" And I'm like, "What in the world? Like, what am I in trouble? You know, I, I'm the senior guy, You're the junior guy. So sure." He goes, look, I noticed when you triangulated, you actually didn't write it down right. You didn't do it right. And I said, Ian, shut up. I got this. And he goes, no, no, let's just walk through it again. So I walk through it, and I line it up. It takes me like 10 minutes, and it's pouring rain, hailing and snowing. It's not good. So I'm taking my slow time to orient. And then he goes, that's it. And then I draw the lines, and we're in a totally different spot. And I said, Ian, I'm so sorry. You were right. I was wrong. Went back out there and I tried to play it cool. So I used some pretty slick jargon. I said, we had a technical difficulty. That's how you cover it up and still save face. I said, we had a technical difficulty. Um, follow me. We're going the opposite direction. So, You've got to be kidding me. And Ian stands beside me. No, it, cloud set in. We retriangulated, made it real technical. And we're going on the right path now. Here's my point you got to go in life, and you got to orient the map. You can hold this Bible, and it's cool. I mean, it is the map of life. But if if you never get oriented with this in your life, you're just running around with some pretty slick phrases and maybe know a few songs, but you're really not going where you need to go. The Christian life is a journey, and you need direction in life. The Bible tells us that God's Word is like a lamp to our feet, a light unto our path. Too many Christians are running around. They never really orient the map. They never really check and see what does the Bible have to say about my situation? What does the Bible have to say about my marriage? What does the Bible have to say about my living situation? What does the Bible have to say about all these things? That's orienting the map. It's putting Jesus first. He's the source of all truth. Lastly, I would just say is grab the rope. Grab the rope. Jesus is the rescue. As a river guide, I... uh, Remember in my training, I was, like I said, I wasn't the best river guide. I was a good one. I wasn't the best. I was a a better mountaineer guide. Um, On my river training, I made buddies with a friend named Matt Clawson and Stephanie Clawson. My first summer. Class three, four, and five whitewater. People died on the river every summer. And I was buddies with Matt. And Matt um, invited me to start kayaking. So I learned how to whitewater kayak. And I did that. And I was good at it. And uh, Matt invites me on this trip, out off during you know the off hours, and so he goes on. We go. He and my buddies go on a kayaking trip, and all my buddies come back, but Matt never did. Matt died on the river that day, and then I'm back on the trail with his sister two days later, and we're hiking through the mountains, and she is broken. Her brother's dead. That experience put a shockwave throughout the entire rafting community in the Arkansas River Valley in Buena Vista, Colorado, and everybody had a humbling experience with the power and the danger of the river. Um, It's the last thing a company wants is for one of their guides uh, to die uh, on the river. And um, it's not only bad for business, it, it takes away the courage and the confidence of many guides. Um, I was told I had two days to get back on the river. The river was at an all-time high. There was people dying on the river, and they said we need to press forward. And Ryan, you're going to be guiding on Side L You could Google it today and look at Side L and see flipped rafts. And people, they told us this is what you need to train your customers. Um, when you get to Side it's at such high water levels right now. You need to pull them aside. You eddy out. You go scout the rapid. And then you tell them, that is the suck hole. If you fall out, you go into the fetal position. The river will suck you underwater, bounce you around around boulders. It will hopefully spit you out. Uh, stay in the fetal position no matter how long you are held underwater. The river eventually will surrender you. You will pop up downstream. When you get to the surface, you will see a bag. It will hit you in the head. You will grab the rope. We will pull you in and you will live. If you do not grab the rope, you will likely die because Twin Falls is directly after that. You will have to swim through two more major rapids and you don't want to do that. So who wants to go rafting? What's crazy is people signed up for this stuff all day long. They, they, acted, they, one, they just don't get it. once somebody said, or they just, I don't know what's going on with people. They, so we get in their boat one day, and they're like, does this river go in a loop? Like, do we come back? I'm like, no. No, it does not go in a loop. Rivers don't do that. Um, another person said, is this boat on tracks? No, this boat is not on tracks. Are those animals staged there? No, those animals are not staged there. The river's real. And customers didn't have a respect for the power of the river. They just wanted to have fun and get their pictures taken. The guides, the the guys that lost people, they understood life and death is right here. And that if you don't do this right, there's going to be death. I can recall uh, when I took those customers down, I am paddling with fear because Matt died and I was asked to get back on that river. I didn't want to be on that river, but I knew if I didn't get back on that river, they would never let me work there again, and I wanted to work there. So I got back on the boat, got the customers in there, took them out, gave them the whole pep talk, and they're acting like everything's fine. I'm like, no, 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 no. You have to understand, this is really serious. If you fall out, you have to do A, B, and C, and then grab the rope if I throw it to you. Here's my point. I think in Christianity, you just need to clarify you should be the voice of one shouting out to your friends and your family that don't know Jesus Christ grab the rope. You will die. Jesus Christ is the rescue. That's it. There is nobody else. There's no second chances, no reincarnation. That doesn't happen, okay? You get one shot. The Bible just said, clearly said, you believe in Jesus Christ, there's life. You do not believe in Jesus Christ, you face death. The other reality is, is there's life and death that's offered to us, and Jesus' mission was to rescue and to save sinners like you and me. Get that message out, ladies and gentlemen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I do pray uh, that we would get a bigger vision for who you are. I pray for your favor and your grace to rest upon all who participate at North Valley, their families. And Lord, uh, give them favor, because your word says that you oppose the proud, but you give grace, that is favor, to the humble. Lord, we humble ourselves before you today. We thank you, Jesus Christ, that you are our rescue. And that through you alone, we can find life and life everlasting. And for all those who have never received Jesus Christ, perhaps online or in the room or outside right now, you need to know that there is no other rescuer that is coming The rescue that is here, the rescue that has come, is Jesus Christ. The Bible says that in believing in Jesus Christ, you find eternal life that is here and now and later and then. You receive him right now as your Lord and your Savior. You be saved from the wrath of God. You be saved from hell, from eternal separation from God. And you experience the goodness of God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is your rescue. You acknowledge your sins. You say, Lord, I am a sinner. I need saving. Rescue me. You believe in him to be your rescue. You believe in him to be the Lord. You confess him with your mouth. You believe in your heart. And the Bible says you will be saved. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would expand our vision for you. We'd be humble people. By understanding, we must decrease and you must Increase. Thank you for the power and the authority in your word and in who you are. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give today at northvalleychurch.org.